0: Pollution impacts every community in different ways. How are researchers and policymakers planning to combat this challenge? Welcome to Tiger Prince. I'm your host, Hope Perry. Today on the show, two recent Princeton grads who researched environmental issues will be joining me to share their findings to help make the world a better place. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. My name is Julia Ilhart. I graduated in the class of
1: 2021, and I was in the School of Public and International Affairs.
0: Julia is deeply invested in environmental justice, especially on a local level. She focused her thesis on this very topic.
1: I guess what I was really interested in was kind of the interplay between the grassroots environmental justice movement and kind of the policy-level environmental justice discourse, particularly at, like, the federal level in the
0: Biden administration and and in other um, political platforms. Before we went any further, I wanted to understand what Julia meant by environmental justice. It's kind of tricky defining
1: environmental justice, partly because I think environmental justice might mean different things in different contexts, like depending on the particular harms faced by a community. And so there's actually a lot of discussion about this, about like, what's the appropriate definition for EJ? And the federal government has its own definition for environmental justice which they use to kind of shape environmental policy in some ways, which has to do with not having disproportionate environmental harms burdening particular communities, notably communities of color and low income. And I think that's a pretty like standard core of EJ. But I think, I guess like two critical components would definitely be incorporated into EJ. I'm sorry, I can't give like a succinct definition, but there's like
0: this concept of
1: procedural justice and also distributive justice.
0: Two more terms came up that I was unfamiliar with. So I asked Julia what she meant by procedural and distributive justice. So distributive justice in the sense that environmental harms should not
1: be distributed in a disproportionate way onto particular people. And then procedural justice in the sense that people who are impacted by environmental harms should have a role in the policymaking process and should have seats at the decision making table essentially as to, you know, what goes in their community and and What they want environmental industries
0: to look like. Okay, so Julia's research focused on how different grassroots movements approach environmental justice and the specific issues facing their communities.
1: Yeah, I think what I really wanted to get a sense of was how these grassroots movements kind of build coalitions around environmental justice issues and use that to advance their policy issues, but at the same time kind of maintain that central focus on the communities who are disproportionately impacted by environmental harms because that's really kind of the crux
0: of the issue. Julia looked at grassroots movements in Texas, North Carolina, and Michigan. I wondered if she found any of the coalitions particularly surprising. Well there are I
1: mean they all had like interesting coalitions. I think there was a really successful coalition that's developed in Houston, or there's a few actually, but one of them is the One Breath Partnership. And it kind of brings together, most critically, environmental justice groups and traditional big green groups, environmental groups, which kind of sometimes have discord in terms of like the solutions that they would advocate for. But this coalition was particularly successful, I think, in pulling leadership from the community and really maintaining a focus on that community component, because sometimes. You'll get the sort of like better resourced, better financed groups coming in, wanting to take leadership or wanting to use grant money and then kind of just move on. But One Breath Partnership has really like had this long term investment in the community and I think has also done a really good job of not only getting community members involved and active on these issues, but also raising their platform in terms of media coverage. So yeah, I mean, like in Houston, there were several big chemical fires in the summer of 2019, I believe it was. And I think that the the EJ coalitions were kind of like well-established and poised to really make it clear how those constituted EJ disasters because those industries were like disproportionately in low-income and communities of color. And like these disasters you probably could have anticipated because there are like so many industries along this ship channel where these communities
0: are. Today, Julia is participating in a fellowship with the Environmental Defense Fund through the High Meadows Institute here at Princeton University. She's conducting academic and policy research related to carbon emissions. Julia's research centered around grassroots movements, but I wanted to know more about the way that governments and corporations were confronting environmental issues. For that, I'm joined by Emily Reinhold.
2: Hi, I'm Emily Reinhold. I'm uh, class of 2021, so recently graduated. I was a SPEA major with a certificate in environmental studies. I live in Levittown, Pennsylvania, but originally I'm actually from
0: Belarus in Eastern Europe. Emily researched plastic pollution for her thesis. Since 79% of plastics end up in landfills or in the environment, I know it's a broad and important topic. So I was curious how she approached it.
2: Sure. So um, I've always been really interested in how we can solve the issue of plastic waste. And basically, in my thesis, I wanted to examine how we could do that without just sort of putting the onus on the consumer and telling people, you know, use fewer plastic bags and try to use things that are reusable. I wanted to ask, how could we do this at a big scale as a country? What can we learn from other countries when we're trying to pass relevant policies? And then could we still possibly get the benefits of the single-use plastics that we use, which have been extremely useful for example during a pandemic can we still get those benefits without the downsides such as you know waste kind of staying on this planet for centuries and so could we possibly expand existing compostable and biodegradable plastics so that we retain those benefits and then figure out uh, an efficient large-scale system for getting rid of that waste in a way that doesn't harm the environment so essentially expanding composting so that was kind of the focus of my research.
0: Since Emily did an in-depth study of the policies of various regions, I'm curious, what different approaches do people use to combat plastic pollution around the world? So I would say
2: the approach and kind of the... the origin of the policies and the um, the motivation for them was definitely different across the regions that I saw specifically. I think you could definitely group like UK, EU, Canada together, and then that versus kind of the many African countries that I looked at. And what's interesting about the various African countries and why I kind of focused on so many of those is that for them, the impact of plastic waste is literally visible on a daily basis. So because the, the stream of plastic waste imports and exports, or rather exports go from developed to developing countries. African countries don't have the kind of privilege of just getting rid of their plastic waste by exporting it to poorer countries. And so everything that ends up as plastic waste they see and it it obviously hurts tourism and kind of hurts their daily life just seeing that on the streets in places like Mauritania it literally causes 70% of cattle and sheep deaths that was a fact that stood out and so because these impacts are so close to them they kind of for them there is a real sense of urgency in both passing these anti-plastic policies and also enforcing them through things like fines seizures of illegal plastic even jail time in many of these countries and so they take it really seriously so i think that motivation being different between between these regions of the world is something that really stood out.
0: Before talking with Emily, I hadn't really considered how the direct impact of plastics on countries would influence their policies. But now I'm wondering, are wealthy countries that experience few direct impacts of plastic pollution taking steps to regulate waste? And if so, how? So some of the
2: kind of overarching policies that the EU passed were things like member states had to have national reduction targets in terms of the reduction of use of single-use plastic and those targets had to be measurable. They had to sort of you know, annually, they have to go back to the EU and say, here's a a reduction that we noticed or didn't notice. They have to extend their producer responsibility. And extended producer responsibility is kind of a popular term in global plastic policies, because what that means is getting the producers as well as the kind of sellers, big manufacturers of plastics, single-use plastics, to take more responsibility for the plastic they produce and sell throughout its whole life cycle. So not just at the very start when they extract it and they produce it, but also very, most importantly, at the end where it ends up. So it's kind of putting more responsibility on them to be sure that their plastic doesn't end up in the ocean for instance or that, you know, ideally it doesn't just end up at a landfill where it can stay for centuries, but that, you know, a portion of it is recycled for instance or ideally if the plastic is, you know, biodegradable or compostable that it gets composted. So that was one of the things that EU directive emphasized. And then another big part of the EU directive especially one that I kind of argued the U.S. should learn from, is that, or maybe this wasn't part of the directive, but in January 2021, the EU banned the export of hazardous and hard-to-recycle plastics to non-OECD countries, so basically to developing countries, which is where the U.S. exports the vast majority of its own plastic waste.
0: One of the key parts of Emily's thesis is a concept called the circular economy. I want to understand what that means in the context of plastic pollution— so Emily, does it involve putting more responsibility on plastic producers or is it something else entirely? The circular economy concept is something that is relatively young.
2: Like when I searched this lit- research this literature, I found it going back to not much earlier than like the early 2000s or 2010s, the idea of it is that we should be able to kind of extract our resources and dispose of them, well, use them and dispose of them in a circular fashion so that we're not constantly extracting new materials. And then we're not disposing of things without regarding without regard to kind of where they end up at the end of their life cycle. And so kind of its ultimate goals are how can we tie the extraction of new materials and the disposal of used materials together. And so in the context of my thesis, the circular economy in terms of plastic would look something like, you know, we first of all instead of using conventional plastics that are based on like fossil fuels, for example, and and petroleum, we use plastics made of like natural organic materials that can then go back into the environment without causing it harm or even potentially bringing it benefits if they're turned into fertilizer for compost, for example. So you would take like plant-based plastics, plenty of which different labs and firms have found. And then, so that's coming out of kind of existing <laughs> materials we have in the world. And then after you're done using it, you basically put it back into the earth and then it can be more or less a circular process. That's kind of the the goal that I see for what I refer to as alternative plastics.
0: After graduating from SPIA, Emily received a fellowship at the Environmental Defense Fund through the High Meadows Institute here at Princeton University. There, she's working on a project that focuses on finding ways for businesses and corporations to improve the sustainability of their supply chains. After my conversations, it's even more clear to me how global these problems are. I feel optimistic though, that there are still ways that we can make meaningful change as individuals. Here's what our guest had to say about how listeners can get involved.
1: I think also it can be really interesting to look up, like in your own community, try to look up maps of where major polluters are located and how that overlays with demographics or how that overlays with historical redlining maps or zoning maps and just trying to get a sense of what that looks like in your town or in your state. What if we write to our you know, state representatives
2: just people who represent you at the state level, your state legislature and say, you know, I noticed that there's this bill being proposed that's currently in committee about having a small tax on plastic bags or about banning them or banning plastic straws or whatever it may be in your state and tell them, I want you to support this, right? As, as someone whom you represent, I care about this and I want you to support it. And I would love for it to have your vote because the person representing you in your state might not even know that any of their, any of the people they represent are actually interested in this. So that's one really good way to speak out.
0: Thank you so much to our guests, Julia and Emily. Thanks. Thanks for joining my exploration into Julia and Emily's research. I hope you learned something new today. You've been listening to Tiger Prince, a podcast produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. This show is edited by me, Hope Perry, and produced by me with support from Rose Huber. Special thanks to other School of Public and International Affairs interns, Jenna Thompson, Reese Williams, and Amon Kosru. The content you've just heard does not reflect the views of Princeton University or the School of Public and International Affairs. Be sure to check out our other podcasts at spia.princeton.edu slash Thanks for listening and see you next time.